From Vine Pair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, before we jump into all things tequila and agave spirits today, which I'm super excited to talk about, um, what, what's been up with you? I think I've, I've talked a lot about myself recently, so I, I want to hear from you. Okay, so this is – I apologize. This is like me griping about something that has zero to do with um, anything beverage-related, really, other than that it affects my drinking and I don't like it. Uh, so we are where my wife and I live, they are doing a bunch of construction around us, which I'm sure as someone who lives in New York city, you experience on a daily basis. It's like unavoidable in New York. Um, but it's, they're building some new townhomes right by us. And I mean, whatever this happens, part of living in a city, you deal with it, except that like they are, I don't know, understand how these people, how the construction work goes as late as it does because like the other day you sound so complaining right now i know i know but like i'm like you know it's it's okay i get it you start at seven in the morning fine like my son is usually awake by then anyhow so it's not like i'm gonna be asleep it's not my favorite thing to deal with but that's cool but it's like 7 30 like i'm trying to sit down to dinner and like they're still like i feel like yes <laughs> it's so so funny i feel like you brought your twitter profile to, to the banter portion uh, of the i don't tweet today. about that kind of stuff no one cares and i'm sorry i know you listeners don't care either but it was on my mind because it's it just super happened. annoying and i'm like you know i'm like trying to enjoy a glass of wine and like the like the house is shaking because they're like drilling something and i'm like really like this has to happen at 7 30 at night anyhow it's life in a city i feel like you know i mean it is. There's like there's new construction going up around the, our apartment, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, there's definitely people in my building that are pissed off about it, but I'm just sort of like, it's New York. Like, what? Like, what are you <laughs> going to do? Yeah, you know, or it's Seattle, or it's Denver. You know, I mean, you choose to live in a city. It's it's kind of it's super annoying, but it is what it is. Like, I don't know. That's that's my that's my uh, stance on it all. But yeah, construction sucks. You know, it is that just, it is what it is. Um, and we're recording this before I leave for Portland, so I'm getting ready to go uh, yes, tomorrow. Yes, yes, yes. Which should be fun for those that listen to the Vodka Podcast. So you know, uh, last week I'm going to spring something on you, and this is going to be possibly old news, so we're going to do a little time warp here. But uh, our, our our good friend Nick Patry, our engineer, will be in Portland at the same time. And he's, Are you serious? I think he's, tr- he's he's trying to he's trying to hang Nick, out and drink you, some claws. If you with show you. up with some white claws, <laughs> that would be hilarious. I'll bring them into uh, Kashka. I'm going to crash your dinner reservation. <laughs> I listen to the podcast. I know everything. <laughs> I'm going to see it's you. A, you're going to do – so he's going to get them to replace one of the vodka plates like, with so, a white cloth. So it's a Friday night. You're just going to show up at Kashka and be like, uh, I have a round of white claws. Is, uh, uh, has anyone ordered them? <laughs> no, uh, you're going to do a flight. You're going to see if you can tell the difference in the flavors. That would be hilarious. Adam, I will be at uh, – Rogue Brewing. We might cut this out, but I'll be at Rogue Brewing on uh, Saturday. So if you guys want to swing by, they're doing an event. Is that why you're going down to Portland? Yeah, yeah. I, I worked on this podcast for REI. They made a podcast and they're doing a collaboration with Rogue Brewing for their Bat Squatch beer. It's a juicy IPA or hazy IPA. Can you get Can you get my people hooked up? Oh, of course, of course. I mean, there's seven of us. Okay. <laughs> Nick has uh, got I mean, a Nick lot of pull. Totally I've got a lot of pull. Everybody else listens to the podcast. I'm really sorry. It's after the fact, but maybe we'll report back that I met Nick at Road Brewing. Yep. Road yeah, Brewing. there we I go. Think, which one? It's Isn't the East like Side one. Brewing? It's the one. It's actually right by um, Kashka, I believe. East Side Road Brewing. What time? Uh, Saturday from like noon or two till 
10 p.m. or something like that. I'll, I'll send you, you the details. You here first, folks. I might be going to Rogue <laughs> Brewing to meet Nick. All right. We're going to need, we're gonna need some Instagram photos if this does happen. Yeah, yeah. We'll finally meet. Um, cool. So I, I think we've had enough banter for this time. <laughs> Literally just me working on my schedule for how I'm going to drink my face off in the, ne- in the next four days. That's uh, important, And man. potentially finally meet our sound engineer in person. Uh, so let's get into the topic. So, Zach, you want to introduce our guest, please? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of drinking your face off, I may have done that at, uh, at our guest bar once or twice. Uh, we're joined in studio here in Seattle by uh, Casey Robeson, who's and I did it. Damn it, Robeson! I promised myself I wouldn't do it, but I've corrected myself. You know, whatever. This is an off the cuff podcast. Casey Robeson, who's the uh, is it was a long is a kind of a I guess I would say kind of a Seattle legend. He uh, was the uh, bar manager at Barrio, which is um, again very conveniently located. I may have to go there after we record this podcast. It's literally less than a block from here, um, and was I mean. You know, Casey, you can sort of talk about it a little bit um, as sort of maybe your entry point into um, agave spirits. But for me, as someone uh, living here in Seattle, uh, and when that bar opened, which was over a decade ago, there were not a lot of places in Seattle that offered much in the way of agave spirits, especially outside of tequila. But even then, you know, uh, you know, your, I mean, most of what you would see on shelves were the sort of big brands that people are largely familiar with, and um, you know, I think there was a, a real. Um, opportunity there to learn a lot about agave. Um, and so we wanted to have you on to talk about tequila, mezcal, agave spirits generally, because I think there's a lot of really interesting questions and and topics of conversation that surround that category right now. So thanks so much for coming in. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't want to get heavy the first question. Well, um, I already screwed up his I, name, I mean, so by whatever. By all means, let's get heavy. Okay. So I'd love if you could just give us Really quickly, an overview before we get into the politics of all of it and the nuances. Can you just give us really quickly a description of tequila and mezcal? What makes both special, but what makes both unique? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I always, I always consider it um, sort of a categorical thing, right? So there's, there's, I break it down to big M, little M mezcal. So little M mezcal is the category. Uh, mezcal is just the. Uh, indigenous, I think it's a Nahuatl language, indigenous to Mexico. It just means cooked agave. So mezcal, or all agave spirits, used to be called uh, vino de mezcal, or wine of cooked agave. Uh, so tequila used to be called vino de mezcal de tequila, uh, or or wine of cooked agave from the town of tequila in Jalisco. And then big M mezcal, as we know it categorically, didn't really exist until like 1996 when it got its regulation. Um and so if I, this is an auto, an audio format, so it's hard to kind of do that. I used to, I always used to draw this on a coaster for people. Uh, so it'd be like little M mezcal is the big overview. And then there'd be different branches from that. And it'd be tequila, big M mezcal, uh, sotol, ricea, bacanora, um, cometico, uh, anything that's distilled from agave plant that comes from Mexico. Um, and then in terms of the regulatory differences, so tequila is technically older. I think it got its regulation in the fifties. I might be wrong about that, but I think it was the fifties. Um, and they've been producing a certain way for a long time, uh, where they would use only blue Weber agave. They would cook it in, um, in clay brick ovens. Um, and that would be sort of the, the, the delineation that made like vino de mezcal de tequila its thing. Um, and then I'm not sure if it was always that way from like the 1700s on or if that started like officially in the 50s. Uh, it's it's hard to really know. Um, I bet there's sort of a mix. I bet like some houses were doing it and the bigger houses did it that way. And then it kind of just became that. 
Um, that would be my guess. And then the categorical Big M Mezcal, the thing that came around in 1996, I think, is when uh, is when Comercom, the regulatory system, was founded. Um, and that gets kind of confusing. So for the sake of simplicity, we'll say that like most Mezcal that we know of in the states that's exported to the states, probably 98% of it comes from the state of Oaxaca. So that's probably what is most closely associated with uh, regulated Mezcal. Mezcal can actually be made in 11 different states, but 98% of it is made in, well, no, 98% of export Mezcal is probably from Oaxaca. Um, and that, the big difference between that and tequila is that with Mezcal, you can use um, any of, I want to say like 40 some odd agave plants, anything that produces enough sugars basically to ferment. Um, uh, and then um, it's not generally cooked in clay brick ovens. It's generally cooked in like a, in a or like roasted or smoldered in an oven in the ground. Um, so they actually dig a pit, they line it with stones, they line it with wood and they ignite it and then they roll the agaves on it and insulate it with used agave fiber uh, mulch basically. Um, dirt and pack it in and, and let it kind of roast and smolder for a while. Um, and and then uh, to me, that's kind of the main, like the really, really, like really fundamental differences. Um, tequila in Mexico comes in at like 35 okay. to 38% ABV or 40% ABV in the States, whereas Mezcal, you don't generally add water to Mezcal. So it comes off this, off its still strength. So it comes, it can be 47%, 49%, 50%. I've had, I've had Mezcal. that's like 56, 57% ABV. <laughs> it's fucking delicious. That's man. insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's like, that's the, that's the like two minute pitch. Why then, do, why do you think so many people, like what, what is it that makes people praise blue agave? Is it just because it's connected to tequila? Like, why are some people like, oh, but blue agave? Like, what makes that that agave so special? Or why do you think that in the 50s or whenever, you know, tequila got its certification, they were like, you know what, this is the only agave we should use? Or was that just the only agave that was in the area? I always like to um, qualify this. It's, it, it's talking about uh, a spirit that is sort of culturally belongs to a different country. Every, anything I say is like conjecture because like I'm not, you know, I'm not Mexican. I wasn't there. I don't, my Spanish is not that good. Um, and everyone per regional has sort of their different takes on things. So uh, my, my, my best guess, my best estimate is that um, Blue Weber is what grew the most abundantly. Um, so Blue Weber and Espadín, which is what like 90% of Mezcal from Oaxaca is made from, they both, uh, they only take seven to eight years to mature. Um, as opposed to some like Tobala, which is like 15 to 18 years or Tepestate, which is 25 years. So they, 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 they don't need that much time to mature. And then they're also really, um, as far as I know, the easiest ones to, um, what's the word to, uh, to like cultivate. cultivate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're the easiest to cultivate, um, as opposed to others that are just more difficult to cultivate. Um, and I think Blue Weber and Espadine, they're, they're genetically almost identical, um, and I, so I think that's why the bulk of it is, is made with those two, those two product or those two plants. So I wanted to ask about, you know, the, you were talking about sort of the difference in tequila production versus mezcal production, big M mezcal production. And, you know, I would wonder, you know, I think for a lot of people, and certainly for me, when I was starting out learning about this, the sort of simple explanation was the difference in flavor profile had more to do with production method. But I'm wondering, you know, in, in your uh, considered opinion, Casey, is the difference in flavor typically between what you see in tequila and what you see in mezcal 
does that have more to do with how it's made or does it have to do with the starting material? Ooh, uh, both for okay. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, it's, 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 I think you're, if I remember correctly, you're kind of a big wine guy, right? So like, <laughs> so you, so you get this, it's all terroir, man. That's where it all comes from. Uh, so it's, um, uh, if you consider, like, I, I always look at it in the sort of like the romantic kind of way where when you're, when you're drinking a tequila, you're drinking mezcal, what you're really doing is sort of letting the, letting the plant sort of tell you its life story, right? Like, it's just like grapes. Um, only instead of like one season, it's 10 years of, of, of a life that you're, that you're sort of taking in. Um, and so the plants a hundred percent affect the flavor profile, the soil a hundred percent affects the flavor profile. So the terroir absolutely impacts the spirit. Um, and then there's another, the, the loose term, the term that I sort of come to understand is like the hand of the maker. So there's like what the person or people producing the spirit decide to put in, like where they cut the heads, where they cut the tails, uh, what sort of yeast are they using? Is it wild yeast? Is it, uh, is it a cultivated yeast? Is it, you know, um, what are they fermenting in? Uh, what is the, like, especially in Oaxaca, there's like dozens of little microclimates everywhere. Right. And so like all that impacts the elevation impacts the flavor profile, the with mezcal, the duration of the roast impacts the flavor profile. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it's so smoky. It's like that can can not always necessarily that can be um, affected by how long they roasted or what type of wood they roasted with or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, And so, I mean, it's everything that's like that's sort of like the magic of of these spirits is that they it's they're all agricultural products. And so it's always going to be everything that surrounds the production is going to impact the flavor profile. Um, that's why, especially with Mezcal, you, you see different batches so often, like you can't really replicate them. Right. Interesting. Very cool. So obviously when we think about both of these, right, one is a massive behemoth and one is, I think, still I'm realizing, and when we look at data here, very, very unknown in in the world of of drinks for most people, right? So big M mezcal, as you're calling it, or just mezcal as a category, right? I think is still something that outside of a lot of cities, people have not heard of, have never had, have a hard time accessing. Um, And then tequila obviously is everywhere, right? So um, in terms of tequila, right? I mean, there's, there's so many brands out there and I think we, we could talk forever about the best ways to drink it, you know, the way to make the right way to make a Paloma, uh, all those kinds of things. <laughs> Tim McCurdy, but, that's for you. Yeah. But, but I'd love to get into to something else, which is really interesting, which is sort of like the politics around tequila. Um, and I think you've seen, you know, as someone who's been in the business forever, you've seen so many different, I mean, hundreds of entrepreneurs coming to Mexico and making tequila. Oh boy. Um, yeah. And obviously then there's one American entrepreneur that came and did very well, I would say what, 10, 15 years ago and created a brand um, that we all, that basically, you know, became the banner for premium tequila in the US. Um, former hairdresser, which is super interesting, um, you know, came from, I think it was LA, right? And started Patron. Um, and then a lot of people followed um, and, and, and create tequila brands. And now you're starting to have a lot of people discussing not a backlash but people saying like look should we be going to mexico as american entrepreneurs 
and creating tequila brands and bringing them back to the U.S. when no one who's really involved with that brand is actually Mexican. Right. And I'm curious if you're hearing this in the industry as much as, as I am here in New York and what your thoughts are about that and how as a consumer, if you are concerned about that, you can actually be drinking tequilas that are being, you know, in which the revenue of the, of the tequila sales are actually going back into the people's pockets in Mexico that are helping to create those tequilas in the first place. Oh, boy. Uh, wow. That's a, that's a, that get is a loaded question. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's, let's, uh, <coughs> let me try to unpack that a little bit. Um, so I'll use, let me use a Mezcal as a good example of something that I think is done right. And just for the full sake of transparency, I work for Pernod Ricard that owns Delma Gay. Um, and I, and I advocate for Delma Gay. I actually took my job so that I could go and like talk about Delma Gay to, to bars. Um, and and I have a good relationship with them, so I think uh, let's let's I'm going to use this, but then turn turn it around to the the overall category of agave spirits from Mexico. So I think Del Maguey did it, basically what you said; they did it right, right? So as an American entrepreneur, he's actually an artist, and he did it in 1995, um, and he just sort of formed relationships and considered what they were producing to be a form of art, and he did a really great job of sort of branding it as this like indigenous, culturally respectful um, uh, art that, that these people made and that, and that we as consumers got to experience um, and they charged appropriately for it and they treated it right. And they respected the community and they gave back in huge ways. Like they built roads, they sent their, the kids to school, the kids, of the mescaleros um, like they did every step as far as I can tell um really 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 well and they've and they've fostered a good relationship with the community and the people they work with and they've been doing you know they've been working with the same contracting uh producers for 25 fucking years um and so that's to me that's a really good example to follow for entrepreneurs who get into mexico like i mean ron lives there he's he's the i've been to his house he lives there um and and they're really respectful of it so that to me that's sort of the like that's like the flagship. That's like the way, if you're going to do it, that's like kind of how you should do it. Um, you know, they never made a dime uh, off Delma Gay for years and years and years and years because they were too busy putting that money back into the community. Um, and then, so to apply that to tequila and even to like newer brands of Mezcal that are coming out, I think it's a case-by-case scenario. Um, like, uh, you know, Patron actually is a really good example. Um, they... As far as I know, like there's certain things that people might have issue with Patron. I sure did for a long time, um, but they've like turned everything around. They employ 1,600 people in the village of Antetolico. Um, they're a huge employer for for the people down there. Um, they are a you know a renew the, a carbon neutral facility. Um, they own all their own fields, so they're not really like um, screwing over any uh, uh, like agave producers. As far as I know. Um, and so, you know, and so that's, that's an interesting case where, where, yeah, it's a, it's a massive brand, but like they're doing things okay. Um, and, and then there's other brands out there that might put like, you know, a celebrity name behind it or, or have a lot of like hype and marketing and, and stuff like that. And you taste the juice and it's like, eh, it's not that good or, or it's good, but like, I don't fucking know anything about it. And so I, I, I don't want to. Like my personal contention that like ever since I stopped being like punk rock, I had to realize that like there's nuances to things 
And, um, and so with tequila and mezcal, it's, to me, it's more like how transparent are they? Um, how much they get back to the community? Like how much, like, is it, if it, is it some white dude coming from the States who's just planning to make a million dollars off exploiting some people in Mexico? Then like, no, you don't want to support that. But if it's, you know, if it's something that is a, very mutually beneficial, um, to the people producing it, I mean, you know, they're producing tequila and mezcal to make money. It's their living. Um, as long as it's not exploitative, then I don't really see much of an issue with it. But then again, it, it, it's really a case by case scenario. So I, speaking of sort of, um, potential exploitation and all these things, you know, one of the, one of the questions I have about agave spirits generally is, you know, you mentioned, and I think it's maybe some of our audience may know this, others may not that, you know, one of the things that does set something like agave spirits apart from wine is that, you know, when you harvest agave, that's it, you know, you need to grow another agave plant to replace it. It's not a yearly harvest or even on that seven or 10 or 15 year cycle. You are, you are harvesting something from nature that then ha- has to grow anew from, from nothing has to be planted or however that's propagated. How much concern is there in the industry about long-term sustainability and about the impact of all this agave harvesting on not just the ability of, you know, continued production, but also the landscape as a whole? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, it's so that, so, so I, I, I have some, uh, knowledge on that, I think, but, um, that's a, that's a, something that kind of changes every year. And there's, you know, tons of, there's not a ton of like accessible data, um, to my knowledge. Maybe I'm just not looking in the right places, but I did read a report, uh, from last year. I think it was last year that said that the, the demand for agave, uh, met 42.2 million agave plants but the supply was only 22 million um so they were 22 million short basically of what they needed to actually keep up with demand and then um and there was something like 18 million of the 18 million other agave plants like blue weber went to the production of agave syrup Mm. that could have gone to the production of tequila um and so i thought that was really interesting I mean, I'd prefer it go to the tequila, right? Um, or like use use other types of don't use Blue Weber, don't use Espadine. But then like, but then it's terrifying to think about what they might use. Um, uh, and so yeah, so sustainability, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I, I I can't speak fully to it. But I will say that like there are a bunch of questions that comes like diversity and biodiversity and cloning agave plants um, and making them more. Uh, like more weak, weaker genetically. So they, they die out faster and then climate change, you know, that's, that could just fuck everything up. Wow. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it snowed in Jalisco like a year ago and killed a, a millions of plants. Um, and so that's, a, that's, yeah, there's all kinds of potential problems. One, one big one actually uh, that I see is on the mezcal side and it's the demand for wild agave, the ones that are hard, harder to cultivate um, so you get this sort of instance where like everyone has some espadine. They're like, yeah, espadine's great, but I want tobala. I want tepestate. I want madrakusha. I want araqueño. I want this. I want that. And then they'll only go with those. And then it's like, but the more you drink those, the less likelihood is it'll be there, you know, because they're not cultivated. So you're saying we're they're like, on we're over hipsterifying mezcal. Yeah, for sure. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're, and there's some, uh, advancements I think in cultivating these previously wild agaves, but, um, but for the most part, like, yeah, I mean, a tepestate takes 25 years to mature before you can use That's it. That's amazing. And so what happens if everyone drinks all the tepestate everywhere? It's gone. 
then it's gone. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly right. Because it'd be just because like a bunch of us in like Brooklyn and, and whoever want to drink it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's, That's exactly insane. right. Yeah. Um, Stop it, hipsters. Yeah. Plus, it's, just, it's people like Casey's fault. I mean, I wouldn't have known what any of these were. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely my fault. Um, <laughs> but I would recommend, you know, um, buy a couple of nice bottles of the wild stuff. And then if you're just drinking every day, like some of us do, I would say stick to Espadine for your like everyday drinking and then pull out the Tobola for a, for a special occasion. Um, okay. So <clears throat> speaking of Mezcal, mm-hmm. there's, there's a ton of you know, buzz about it in the trade. People love it, you know, almost borderline obsessed in a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of circles, but consumers that I meet have really yet to embrace sure. it. Um, and again, like if we look at just data of both readership information on our site, as well as and we write a lot about it um, or even sales data, right. We've had a very hard time seeing there sure. be a lot of traction in terms of people's interests. So do you think it's a disconnect between the trade and the consumers? Like trade love it and it's just not going to be something that consumers ever really fully embrace. It's just a different flavor. Or do you think maybe, I don't know, we haven't done a good job of educating people of why Mezcal is interesting? Like where do you, where, why do you think Mezcal hasn't taken off even though some people think I it think will? it's a sort of a combination of all those things. Um, uh, from a flavor standpoint, I mean, you know, the easiest transition from like a spirit from a different spirit to mezcal is probably like an Isla Scotch, right? Like, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of similarities in that big kind of robust, um, I guess for lack of a better phrasing, but like smoky characteristics. Um, and so, you know, if you're big Scotch drinkers over to mezcal, like, you know, one out of 10 might be like, I'm super into this. This is great. But those other nine are gonna be like, why, why am I drinking this when I could be drinking my Scotch? You know, they're like, they're, st- they're setting their ways. Um, I think another aspect you know like a lot of people consumers your general consumer like when you talk about a um, a spirit from mexico they go to tequila and they're like yeah i'll take shots of tequila and like well you don't shoot mezcal like you i i drink a lot of mezcal and i can't shoot mezcal it hurts um and, and, but personally and uh my flavor profile or my my palate um but <laughs> i like that um I think that, yeah, I think it's, it's a, you know, it's like, I always equate it to, to drinking Campari, right? Like the first time you drink Campari, anybody, I don't care who you are, anybody, the first time you drink Campari, you're like, Ooh, I don't know this. But then gradually over time, you're like, Oh, Campari and soda. Oh, a Negroni. Oh, this, Oh, that. And you're like, Oh, my palate starts to like it. And I think it's the same premise with Mezcal, but a lot of consumers, right? Your basic consumer is not going to give themselves the time to sort of get used to something that is that potent. And, you know, I mean, Mezcal's high in ABV. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of characteristic, a lot of flavor, um, and it should. Um, and so, and then the marketing, you know, every, the way that spirits are marketed in general are just fucking terrible. Um, <laughs> and like, and how, like, what are you going to do? Market a, market a, 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 a agricultural spirit made by Oaxacan farmers as some sort of like party drink? Like, fuck you. no. Um, you know what I mean? So, right. so I, I think that educating somebody on, on Mezcal is, is educating your, your like average consumer on Mezcal can be very, very difficult because it's more like wine. How do you, how do you educate your basic consumer on right. like really high end fantastic wines? And they're like, no, I want Charles Shaw. Before, before Zach jumps <laughs> in with another question, I do have a, a quick one to follow up on what you just said, but aren't we also doing it wrong by shooting tequila? Like, Absolutely. Every time I've been to Mexico, no one yeah. fucking shoots tequila. No, nobody shoots tequila. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's th- think about the absurdity of of the fact that this this thing, even the worst tequila, even the garbage tequila, has some component of it that took eight to like or between I guess five to eight to ten years to mature before it could be used, and then you just like and then it and then it maybe it goes through an aging process, so maybe it's another year. So you're looking at a product that's like eleven to twelve years old. And then and it's it's on the bar top, and then you just put it down. I mean, shooting spirits in general, I think, is like, at least at my age, I'm like, don't please don't do that. Yeah, this um, is the curmudgeonly part of the podcast. Yeah, this is definitely. I'm just old. And, I'm just old and old. Please and don't mean, do that. But, um, well, maybe vodka. I mean, maybe not. You know, like, well, maybe. I mean, uh, if you Russians shoot vodka, so you know, maybe just do it like they do it in the home country. Um. So my question is sort of coming back to this this conversation about differentiating between the spirits and a little bit between not not sorry sorry not between tequila and mezcal but differentiating maybe quality and understanding sort of the again hierarchy is the wrong way to put it but kind of trying to understand um like what makes for a really what what sets some of the spirits apart and i think you know one thing that i wanted to ask about too because i think you know we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who work in the in the uh beverage industry in one form or another and i think there's actually uh, you know in some ways with tequila and and mezcal to some extent i think you see it more in tequila in some ways it can be hard to understand okay am i is quality tied to the amount of time that the spirit spent aging in a barrel is quality tied to in the case of mezcal, you know, being connected to, um, you know, being connected to a wild agave plant. So how in your mind do you kind of organize quality? And, and what would you sort of say to people who are like, okay, well, you know, I've got to fit this product into, you know, a bar program. And right. I'm not going to unfortunately right. be able to have 100 skews of tequila, right, 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 200 yeah. skews of mezcal because yeah. I don't have that kind of bar. Sure. Of course. Um, I mean, everyone's got their different kind of ideas, right? How I How I always looked at it was... Um, I, I always start with flavor profile first. Um, so like if somebody were to come in and, uh, and be like, here, I've got this product. I'd be like, okay, well, let me, let me taste it. Okay. So we taste it and then we'll see. And you, know, you can, you can kind of rule stuff out just, just right, right off the bat there. You know, if you don't, if you maybe wouldn't personally drink it, or if you can't see an application for it, then that could, would kind of rule it out. And then if I liked it, um, then I would start doing some homework on it. And and this is like the one thing that I always advocate for is transparency. So it's always, 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 especially in agave spirits, super important for that you can that the brands are transparent because there's so much to hide um, in all spirits in general. But you know, Mexico too. It's it's just it can be a tougher a tougher um, uh, country uh, to deal with um, in terms of transparency. And um, and so I'd always do some homework and I'd want to know. Um, you know, like where, where does it come from? What is the distillery? Like, especially with tequila, you can actually look up the nom and see like, what else does that distillery make? Do they make other things that I like? Do they make some things that I find abhorrent? If so, like, how come this one was different? And then I can, I can sort of start building up, I can start putting the puzzle together, I guess. Um, And then, you know, another thing, and something I, again, it's just my personal preference, but something I always look for is like, do they use additives? Because there's a, you know, you can legally, you can use 1% additives in all your tequila. So do they use additives? Um, uh, and so what? Like using additive didn't necessarily rule it out for me, but I'd like to know kind of what they're doing, what they're adding. Are they adding caramel color? That's pretty normal. Are they adding different flavor flavor components that aren't natural in tequila? Well, I don't know about that. I don't like that. Um, uh, so, and like, the aging stuff 
I don't care for aged um, agave spirits myself. It's not my my speed. Um, I like I I, I kind of feel like it stayed. It was in the ground long enough that I don't need to let it sit in wood any longer. Um, but as far as quality goes, I never considered necessarily time in the barrel to be indicative of quality. I more considered it to be like how did they utilize the time in the barrel to create a flavor profile that they wanted. So like um, a really good example is tequila ocho, where like they basically keep keep it in the barrel for like the minimum legal time because they still want like the flavor of the agave to come out and this flavor profile of the plant itself. And like, to me, that's super respectable and it's really good. But then there's others, there's some extra añejos. Um, the, I think one brand is called like Fuente Seca and it's, it's like, they do like a 21 year, which is crazy. Like that's not normal. Um, and it was like this climate controlled cellar and like there's something, some crazy uh, story to it. But and again, it wouldn't necessarily be something that I would sit back and be like, yeah, this is my particular thing that I like, but I can taste it and be like, that's really fucking interesting. That's cool. I like that you experimented with that. So like, everything's kind of got a different application. Um, as far as like, for me, what do I think just like makes the best? Um, I mean, I've, my entire life, I've been a Siete Legos guy. Um, I, I, to, to this day, I still think that's one of the, the single greatest tequilas um, known to production and they do a really great job. And, 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 uh, and Fernando, the guy who makes it, he, he does everything right. You know, there's no diffusers, no additives. Um, it's, it's a, you know, he, he just does it right. And the, and the taste is beautiful. Um, and that, but that's my particular favorite. I really like Highland tequilas, probably over Valley tequilas a little bit. And so it's all kind of relative. Did that answer the question at all? <laughs> you, did, you did as good a job as anyone okay, gave with that okay. kind of question. So, okay. I got one last question for you, and this is like a I'm, I'm actually a question we get a lot from readers, and it's partly it partly try it, the person responsible for this question getting asked all the time is a famous actor who also happens to own a tequila brand and basically made this offhanded comment that he doesn't get hangovers from tequila, uh-huh. and I think there is a pretty big belief out there now, uh, especially when you can people start tying agave back to being related to cannabis and health and yada 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 that tequila mm-hmm. is better for you than other alcohols. I'm just curious, like, does tequila give you a hangover? I mean, yeah, of course. Because <laughs> I, 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 so I will say, I've I've definitely had some nights in Oaxaca where if I stuck only to mezcal. This would be mezcal and like water would be the only other thing. I had no beer, no anything else. I would uh, have a better morning than I would have otherwise. Because, you know, because again, a hangover is delivered through different mechanisms, right? Like it's a lot of it's sugar. Um, and and so right. like, so cocktails will definitely give you a hangover. Uh, but when it comes to like, I, you know, that's a tricky one for me because the, the, you're, my brain says it's distilled. It's a, it's a distilled beverage. You're drinking alcohol. Alcohol removes, it dehydrates you and it gives you hangovers. It's like, that is what alcohol does. Um, like it affects your body in that way. Uh, so I've never really believed in the, like the tequila is a better alcohol for you (laughs) because it's all, I mean, when it scientifically, it's all the same. It just tastes different. Um, so I've definitely had, I've definitely had hangovers from, uh, every, every spirit I've ever consumed in my life. Yeah. 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 I think that's a universal. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if I were worth like 700 bazillion dollars, I could, 
I mean, maybe he like takes some weird like Russian drug or something that, that <laughs> just prevents him from getting yeah. hangovers. It's, but he I can't mean, talk about that. We, we've 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 had we've had this conversation multiple times on the podcast. Uh-huh. I think uh, the the halo of health around alcohol or certain kinds of alcohol has become very interesting to me over the past yeah. few yeah. months of people sort of trying to claim that one's healthier than another, and at the end of the day. Right. Sort of like guys, it, it all has alcohol in it. So let's right. just it's like it, I mean, it's it, delicious, but at some point, like it is alcohol. Right. I mean, it's like smoking, right? Like, yeah, we can all admit that it's bad, and and you shouldn't necessarily do it, but sometimes you do. Right. And that's it. And that and you know, just own it. Yeah. That's exactly. It. Same. With, it's the same thing with drinking. Well, Casey, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, Nick, I'll see you in Portland. Everyone else, uh, thank you so much for listening uh, once again this week. If you you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people discover the show. Um, And Zach, I will talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.